0: It's Advent Sunday, but I'm actually not going to give an Advent address. If you want an Advent address, Charles is going to give a, he tells me, a very full Advent uh, address this evening. So, 6.30 at All Saints is the place to be. I did actually spend some time sort of agonising and worrying about whether I ought to do a, an Advent address. But I really felt God was was leading me to what I'm going to be sharing. Um, and I, I believe it's the right thing to look at this morning. We're going to look at the story of Jacob. Um, and it's an Old Testament story, so you may think, well, Old Testament, you know, do we really need to worry too much about the Old Testament? Well, the New Testament tells us quite clearly that the Old Testament was written down for our benefit and for our instruction. It wasn't written for the, the time it was, it was, it was uh, recorded. It was written for us. And it's important, therefore, that we understand something about the Old Testament. And why Jacob? Well, Jacob actually is probably one of the most significant members of the Old Testament. There are actually, a quarter of the book of Genesis is actually about Jacob. Twelve of the chapters is specifically to do with with Jacob, so he is quite a significant person. But I guess we don't necessarily always know all of that story. So what I want to do first of all is just run through, in ten minutes or so, twelve chapters of Genesis. So I'm not going to deal with it in detail, but just to pick out some of the highlights and some of the things that we need to be perhaps thinking about Um, as we recall the story of Jacob. If you remember, God had called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, where he was probably an idolater. And God had said that he was going to call him out, he was going to give him a promised land, he was going to make him a great nation, and in his seed, in his descendant, all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. And we know that that was fulfilled in Jesus. After Abram... Isaac came and God repeated that promise to Isaac. He said through Isaac now, this nation would come. They would attain the land, Canaan, and from his loins would come a deliverer, one who would save mankind. And then Rebekah, Isaac's wife, has two sons. And the first one is described as red or ruddy and His body was like a hairy garment. So you can imagine this baby coming out all red and hairy and I'm not quite sure what it would have looked like. Um, And then as it's coming out, a little olive hand is grabbing its heel, trying to pull it back in. And Jacob is born, the second of the two sons. And Jacob is given this name, which basically means grabber, someone who grabs. And colloquially or figuratively, it's a description of someone who deceives. And Jacob lives up to his name. First of all, he deceives his brothers, his brother and then his father. He deceives his brother out of his birthright. Esau should have been the one through whom all these promises were fulfilled. Because Esau was the first son. But Jacob cheated him out of his birthright. And then when, when Isaac, his father, wants to give his blessing to Esau... Jacob cheats him out of that and if you remember the story he dresses up as, as, as Jacob and he as um, Esau and puts uh, goat skins over his arms so that his father who's going blind and probably a bit senile at that time isn't really able to determine who he's dealing with and Jacob creeps in and sneaks in and he manages to deceive his father Esau is a big bloke He's a hunter, he's supposed to be very powerful and he says, right, you know, I've had enough of this and he determines to get revenge and so Jacob runs away and on his journey running away God meets him at a place called Bethel and there's the well-known story of Jacob's ladder and at Jacob's, Jacob's ladder at that, uh, as part of that vision God promises Jacob that in him, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, he will become a great nation, and he will get the land. And so God is making this promise, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, that in his seed, or from one of his descendants, this great saviour is going to come. And so Jacob says, right God, if you're going to do this for me, provided you look after me, provided you do what I think you should do, Provided I'm alright, then I promise I will serve you. And how much is that like us sometimes? You know, if you do what I think you ought to be doing, then I'm prepared to serve you. And so at that stage, Jacob has a fairly sort of slanted view of who this God is. He knows he's the God of his father, Abraham. He knows he's he's the the God of his father, Jacob. But he also tries to sort of have a relationship with God which is conditional. It's based upon what God can do for me. And if God meets his side of the bargain, then I'm quite happy to to follow him. And so Jacob continues on his way, and he goes to his uncle Laban. And I won't go into all the stories there, but if you know the story, uh, 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 Jacob manages to completely deceive Laban. And he gets very rich at Laban's expense. He takes a whole series of um, animals and manages to sort of convince Laban that they are rightly Jacob's. And then God says to Jacob, Now is the time to go back to your land. I'm going to go back. I want you to go back to the land that I promised you, and I will be with you. And despite the fact that that he has that promise of God, despite the fact that God has said, I will be with you, he actually goes back in great fear and trepidation. Because on the one hand he says, yes God, I trust you. But on the other hand, he's actually living in exactly the same fashion as he was before. He hasn't actually had any real change in him. He's now worshipping or responding to a God, but he still living it's exactly the same way as he did before. And he runs away from Laban, knowing that God's going to be with him, knowing that God's promised him to take him back to that land in great fear, and jumps out of the frying pan right into the fire, because he suddenly realizes having got away from Laban, Esau is still waiting for him. And he sends some people on ahead, the and um, they come back and they say, Esau is coming to meet you with 400 warriors." And so, panic sets in. And God meets him again. But despite the fact that God has now met him three times, Jacob is still living in fear. He still hasn't got confidence in God. He knows God, but he isn't really, hasn't really got faith in God. And again, the challenge to us is, do we know God, and does that change our attitude to things? Or are we still, feel, still fearful? So Jacob, in great fear, comes up with this strategy, that he is going to appease Esau and make things better, despite the fact that God's already promised him that he's going to look after him, and he's going to deal with the situation. And if you think of the stories of the patriarchs, that's what they did consistently. God made them promises, and because God didn't do things straight away, they said, well, we better make our own solution to this. we better find our own own way around the problem. And consistently, the patriarchs, although they had God's promise, they actually determined to to, to find their own solution to it, which is why we have the story of Ishmael, for example, who was born solely because Abraham and Sarah didn't believe that God would provide them with a son. They decided to find their own solution. And Jacob is doing the same thing. God has said, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to take you back safely. But Jacob says, hmm... I better have my own solution to this. And so he does that. And that's where we pick up our first reading. Um, and we have Jacob at the Jabbok. He sent all of his family and all of his possessions on ahead, and he is alone with God. And we find him wrestling with a man. Now, Hosea is quite helpful here because he gives us some background to this. And that man is also described as an angel. And most commentators would say it was the angel of the Lord. It was Jesus in a pre-incarnate state wrestling with Jacob. And Jacob himself recognises that because he said, I've wrestled with God. This This is God wrestling with Jacob. And there's this wrestling going on for supremacy. Whose will is going to be supreme? Jesus or Jacob. And is that not so often true of us? There is this battle going on in our lives. Whose will is actually supreme? Is it my is my will supreme or is Jesus' will supreme? And eventually, after wrestling all night, the man dislocates his hip. And then Jesus uh, sorry, then Jacob realizes his inability, and we find from Hosea, that he now becomes a supplicant and he weeps and seeks God's favour. And it wasn't until God had brought Jacob to this position of realising his inability, of realising that God has to be all in all. It wasn't until then that Jacob really began to realise his need of God. He thought he could deal with the situation he was always the clever one. He was always the one that could find a way around the solution. He had his own ideas. And it wasn't until he realized his inability that he was able to say to God, I need to have your purpose and I need to have your plan. And again, is that not so often true of us? We try to rely on our own abilities and we're not prepared just to submit to God and to find out what He wants. And remember that fight, that battle, went on all night until God got the supremacy. And I wonder whether we spend that that sort of time with God to enable him to have that that working in our lives. And Jacob doesn't give up. He says, I'm not going to let you go. If if I've got to be here all day, I'll be here all day. I'm not going to let you go until I receive your blessing. And the challenge of Jacob to, to us here is this. How persistent are we in our praying? And then the next thing that happens is this. Jacob's name is changed. He says, what's your name? My name's Jacob. Jacob was someone who supplants, someone who whose own will is, is central, who thinks they can deal with situations. Now his name is changed to Israel, and Israel is the one whom God commands. So he's gone from a position whereby my will is supreme, I'm in charge, to a situation where God commands. I now want to know what God's purposes and what God's plans are. And then he names the place Peniel because he's seen God face to face. He continues on his journey. He's still got his plan going. Despite all these experiences of God, he's still operating his own plan. He's still got his own will. He still thinks he can deal with the situation better than God can. And so he sends sends flocks on in great blocks. And he says to the people who have got the flocks, when you get to Esau and Esau says to you, whose flocks are these? Then you are to say, well, they're yours. They're a present from Jacob. And he's hoping that by the time he gets there, Esau will be so flattered with all these gifts that he'll actually um, respond favorably to Jacob. But in fact, God has already operated in Esau's life. And Esau actually treats Jacob like a brother. So all his planning, all his scheming was all a waste of time. Because God had already got the situation in control. And then he moves to Shechem and he builds an altar to the Lord. And this time, there's a difference. Because the first two or three times he prayed to God he had prayed to the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. Now he prays to the God of Israel. Now he's no longer praying to my father's God or my ancestor's God. He's now praying to my God. And because of the experience of wrestling with God, he has begun to realise that he can have this personal relationship with God himself. He's no longer worshipping God as the God up there, or the God over there, or somebody else's God, but he has got this personal relationship himself with God. And then God says to him, I want you to go back to Bethel, where I first met you. And again, there is a difference. Before, he's just walked into God's presence, but now he recognizes he needs to prepare himself if he's going to become anything with God and he says to his family we've got to get rid of all our foreign gods we've got to purify ourselves we've got to repent if we really want to come into the presence of this most holy God we can't just walk into God's presence we need to recognize who he is and God receives him and this is chapter 35 of of uh, Genesis and he reiterates to him all the promises given to Abraham and to Isaac, and makes the point, you are no longer Jacob, you are now Israel, you are changed, you are different, you are transformed. So there are three questions that I'd just like to pose from that story of Jacob. And the first one is this, and it may be for most of us, this is something that we know anyway. And I just want relates relate to that chapter, Luke, Luke chapter 13. And it's this. What is my relationship with God? Am I secure in that relationship with God? Do you remember Jesus said that in the last day, lots of people are going to come to the gates of heaven and they're going to say, can I come in? And he's going to say, who are you? And they're going to say, I ate with you. I drank with you. You taught in my streets. You might say, I attended church every Sunday. I'm a church member. But the test is, do I know God? Does God know me? Jacob had these relationships with God, but it was the God of his father. It wasn't until he became Israel that it was my God. And we need each one of us to make sure that we have that covenant relationship Jesus said make every effort now I could be wasting my time because you're already all believers and you'll know that you're saved, fantastic but if there is anybody here that still isn't and isn't sure Jesus says make every effort it's too late on that day to say ah um, can I do something about it because the door will already be shut and Jesus says quite clearly Does God know you? Will God be ready to welcome you? The second thing is this. How do we pray? Do you remember that Jacob was prepared to spend all night, and if necessary, all day, to get God's response? I just want to just mention a a couple of stories in the Old Testament that just illustrate this. There's a story in two kings about Jehoash the king. And Jehoash... Is about to be completely overrun by the Aramites and he's in a panic. And so he calls up Elisha and says, What can I do? We're about to be overrun. And Elisha says to him, Open the east window, get a bow and arrow and bring the bow and arrow to me. And then he and the king together fire an arrow through the east window. And as the arrow is going out, Elisha says, The Lord's arrow of victory you will defeat the Arameans. Then he says to the king, I want you to take the arrows and beat them on the floor. And the king takes the arrows and he beats them on the floor three times. And it says, the man of God was very angry. And he said to the king, why did you only beat the arrows three times? You should have have beaten them on the floor five or six times. But because you only beat them three times... You're only going to get three victories. You're not going to get a complete victory over the Aramites. Because your response to God was not full-hearted, you will not get a full answer to your prayer. It's the same idea. The king should have been completely full-on as far as God was concerned. He should have been really going for the full solution, but he, he stopped short. And is that not true of us so often? And then there's a story of Moses in um, Genesis, where uh, not Genesis, in Exodus, where the Israelites and the Amalekites are fighting. And Moses is holding up the staff of God. And all the time that Moses is holding the staff up, the, the, the Israelites are winning the battle. But his arms get tired, and every time he, his arms came down, the Amalekites are winning. And so um, Aaron and Hur put a seat on, a, a stone under him to sit down and each one holds his arms up. And because his arms are held up in prayer to God, the Israelites win the battle. And again, the challenge, to, the challenge of Jacob is this. How much time are we prepared to give? Do we really spend so much time that we really ensure that we get through with God, that we know we're going to get God's blessing? Or is our prayer sometimes half-hearted? And the third one is his attitude when he came to God at the church weekend, Alex was teaching from chapter 2 on the cleansing of the temple, which was referred to earlier. Um, And it's important to recognise that Jesus is still in the business of cleansing the temple. Jesus still wants clean temples. The question is, where is the temple? Is it this building? Well, in the New Testament, the temple is you and me. It's us. And I guess in these days... Things like holiness teaching and stuff like that does not perhaps go down too well. But Jesus wants pure vessels. If he's going to work through us, he demands pure vessels. It's no good saying, you know, we we sometimes say Jesus accepts us as we are. Well, he does. But he doesn't want us to stay as we are. I think Ron said that the other week. But it is so important to recognise that Jesus wants a pure and cleansed church. And Jacob recognised that the last time he went before God, he realised that he couldn't just walk into God's presence. He needed to be clean and he needed to be pure. I'll leave it there, but just think about those three, 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 three aspects of Jacob's life. Are you sure? Do you have a name change? Do you know that you are now no longer Bill, Fred, Iris, but you are now son of God? daughter have you got that relationship with God that you are his dear child are you prepared to so go for God that you you just continue until you are assured that you received his blessing and are you prepared to have him cleanse you in the same way that Jesus cleansed the temple